0: Make <laughs> <laughs> <What went wrong? laughs> <laughs> <what>
1: it <laughs>
2: Just kidding, I can't match. Uh, A couple announcements for you this morning. One, um, Christmas Eve is on Thursday. Thank you. I keep mixing up Thursday and Friday. It's on Thursday. So Thursday at 8 p.m. We will be having our candlelight Christmas Eve service. And for those of you who would like to join Alicia and the rest of the Shope family and Stevenson family, um, starting at there's going to be caroling up and down Kelsey. Um, Mr. Tony Tate uh, was a champ and went out and pre- pre-caroled. We're calling pre-screen. it pre-caroling. <laughs> uh, pre-screen, pre-caroling, whatever. Um, and it just because we were concerned, like, hey, how are people going to take random people coming to our houses on Christmas Eve to sing songs at us? So it was very well received. So Christmas Eve at 630, there will be caroling. Um, So, if you'd like to be a part of that, that uh, we'll meet probably in the cafeteria at about six fifteen. If you want to start showing up, Um, that I'm sure people will be here, and it'll be a good time. So, um, and then again, if you can't make it to Caroling, come to Christmas Eve service eight o'clock right in here with all your friends. Amen. All right, and And without the huh? Oh, and online. See you guys in there. Mm-hmm. All right, Mr. Josh, will you open us up in prayer, please? Okay, I need everybody to stand up.
0: I was just sitting there hoping I
2: was going to do this. <laughs> so this is a song that we haven't done here before. Um, it, I heard this song a couple months ago. Yes, I started listening to Christmas music two months ago. Much to my husband's dismay. Anyways, um, so... The song touches a little bit, not necessarily on the birth of Jesus side of Christmas, but the joy and happiness side of Christmas that comes along with that. Um, and there's some examples in here. Um, there's some just different pieces that fits in. So I want you to listen to the words. They're on the screen. Sing along if you can, if you know the song. Um, but it, it meant quite a bit to me when I first heard it. Stand
0: up.
3: Speaking to you, and so in the middle of a pandemic, with all the kind of crazy political stuff that's gone on, civil unrest in the streets at, at different times, and stuff like that, how has God been speaking to you? I hope through His Word, I hope in your prayer time or whatever. But how has God been speaking to you, and what would you share with us? And if you have not, and you say, you know, I haven't uh, been uh, hearing from the Lord this last week, and I don't really feel like I have something to share today, then maybe you would share with us something. About Christmas or Christmas past that was really mean for you, meaningful to you, or a tradition that you have that you do, or something like that, and and uh, and then we can talk about how God uses those things to strengthen us during Christmas time. So, what do you got? Have you heard something from the Lord this <coughs> last week? This is your opportunity. All right, while you're thinking for a second, I'll share one. Um, this goes back; it came back to me this morning, but it goes back to about a month ago. And it was as, quote, Christmas time was just getting started, right? And we, we had done a little bit of Christmas shopping, but we hadn't talked about any Christmas shopping. And, um, and I actually found a, a, a bargain present, if you will, know, and I thought it was a really good price. And I went ahead and bought it, and they delivered it. And it was delivered um, in view of the person that it was delivered for. And uh, then it was like, well, who's that for? Who's that for? Who's that for? And I said, you've got to realize, Christmas is not about Christmas presents. It's not about wrappings. It's not about tinsel. It's not about trees, right? And, and, um, and I'm just going to say it was Ariana. And she said, you know, I totally understand that. I get that. And I said, well, you see, what would happen if a Christmas came and we couldn't give each other gifts? What if we couldn't buy gifts and we got a, a sad Christmas, you know, in that sense, or a poor Christmas? or What would happen if a Christmas came and we couldn't do that? And she said very thoughtfully, she said, well, <coughs> I would try not to be upset about that, because I understand those things are not what Christmas is really about, they're really about celebrating Jesus, and I thought about that, and then right after that we went out, and for the rest of the last month or whatever, we've done the Christmas thing, we've done the baking and the Christmas tree, we've got a beautiful Christmas tree, uh, which is, by the way, not a Christian thing at all, it comes from pagan religion, but it's a lot of fun to do, so we do it anyway. and... And uh, things like that. We have all, we've done all the trappings. And so we've been blessed to have those things, but you don't have to have those things, right? You really need Jesus. That's right. And he came and was born, and yeah, to a poor family in a dangerous situation. In swaddling cloths, which means basically their extra clothes. That's what he was wrapped in. He was wrapped in their extra clothes, whatever they had left over probably somebody's pair of pants maybe had a hole in the knee, you know what I'm saying and laid in a manger which is a feeding trough and probably in a stables just like you would think of a stables and that night the shepherds came and they were amazed they were so blessed to be allowed to be involved because they are the lowliest of people and we are reminded by that that no matter where you come from or what you've been through or what you've done or how stupid or how foolish or how dirty it is God loves you and he wants that relationship with you now that's a Christmas gift it doesn't have a wrapping paper, and it doesn't plug in. But it's what Christmas is all about. And I was very blessed to be reminded of that right before we had to do all of the Christmas things.
4: By oh, my God. God is good. Did you have something? Okay. How are they? Uh, A couple of years ago, Jason did something similar. Yep. We were sitting down at lunch. I took them out to lunch one day, and we were eating at, I believe, it, it was And there was an elderly couple that was sitting at the table next to us. And Jason and Caleb were talking back and forth, and they were talking about things that they wanted for Christmas. And I was like, okay, hold on, guys. I was like, you do realize that's not what Christmas is about. And I'm like, zero hesitation at all. Jason goes, no, it's about the birth of Jesus. I was like, there you go. And apparently the lady that was sitting next to us, she overheard the conversation, and she completely broke down. Like all in the middle of the rush drive and everything because and I, I think it's a lot of like what you were saying is a lot of these traditions have gotten in the way of what Christmas is actually about. And ever since I was little, I've never been a big fan of Christmas. I've always been the Scrooge, I guess. And it drives my wife up a wall because this is her favorite time of year. But I've had Christmases where I wake up on Christmas morning and we had nothing. So Christmas to me kind of lost its meaning along the way because I was when I was I don't know how to say I was seven and it was the first time I woke up on a Christmas morning and we didn't have anything because my parents, we couldn't afford anything and so knowing now that there's other people out there that have the same belief that you know Christmas isn't about presence, it's not about getting the new things, it's about for me what I've always thought Christmas was about was spending time with family and being involved with family, you know, getting reconnected with family that you haven't seen and you know, just trying to enjoy the time with family and friends. And there's more to it now that i am become Christian and there's more there's more to that. There's more than just spending time with family and friends. It's knowing that we now have someone that we can look to, to save us. So we have a way into heaven. But um, something else that I was thinking of was, there was a, uh, I don't like Christmas music at all. I can't stand Christmas music, mostly because, <laughs> mostly because it's the same like, handful of songs sung a thousand different ways, and it just drives me nuts. But there's a song that I absolutely fell in love with, and I'm still not 100% sure why because it's a very sad song, but it's a very good song, and it's basically this guy, he is a traveler, and he meets this girl, and they dance on Christmas Eve, and then they go their separate ways, and they never got each other's name. Well, as the years go by, he's telling everybody this Christmas story, and as he's laying on his deathbed, he asks the nurse that's with him, a little nurse that's with him to tell him a Christmas story, and she tells him his Christmas story, because it was her. Now, I absolutely love that song, and like I said, I don't know really why, but it just, like I said, to me, I've never been a big fan of Christmas, but over the last few years, it's gotten a lot better, but it's just mostly because, like I said, I <laughs> I know that there's way more Christmas than just gifts, and... It really irritates me sometimes when that's all people care about. Like, it really, really makes me mad, especially when my kids do it. They're like, oh, well, well, what'd you bring me? And when my sister Connie came over yesterday, the very first word that came out of Jason's mouth when he saw Connie was, did you bring any presents? I just looked at him like, really, dude? It's like, dude, that's not what this is about, man. You can't just automatically assume you're going to get something because you have to also think that there's people in the world right now that... We'll get nothing. There's there's kids in the world right now that will will get nothing on Christmas, and they won't even know why. They won't understand that the greatest gift to give on Christmas is already been given. So it's it's sad, I guess, in a way. But good work. Okay. Anybody else? I guess, you have a, I guess when I look back fondly on my Christmas memories, was like, I never think about like, presents that I got or gifts when I was a kid or whatever. I always remember the times when I was with the family and grandma's record and you know, the whole family, even though there's like probably 20 more people than that in the they are all there. And uh, it just, it, it reminds me to cherish you know, the times that I had with family because when I look back 20 years from
5: now, if I'm still alive. I would say, if I had a hazard
3: guess, I would say that 90% of the Christmas presents we have ever received have come and gone and had relatively little impact on us as a person. That would be my guess. It's not that they weren't good gifts. It's not that they weren't timely when they were given or given very thoughtfully or given very lovingly, but it's the love of the gift, it's the person... Those things, being with people and, and um, caring about the other person and being cared for back, that lasts and they build people. Gifts, Christmas gifts can be, you can buy something as expensive as possible. You can buy, go buy somebody a brand new car, all payments paid off, brand new, whatever. And yeah, big flash in the pan. you you never forget that. But the truth is, eventually that car is going to rust away. It's going to be gone. And 30, 40 years ago, it might be the frying pan that they get exactly when they need it that is so much more important than the car they got. You know, so everything based. people are meant to be eternal. You want to invest in something that lasts the best possible. That's a good word. Very good. Um, okay, so uh, we're gonna I'm gonna end on this because I felt like the spirit told me to do this. So I mean, we're gonna do a little um, as a group we're gonna do a little bit of activity here. So this is a you can shout it out if you have the answer or you think we can forward it a little bit more. So it's, uh, I'm going to start it like this. So this is what God the words that God just put in my heart. It said, uh, Christmas time you can wrap the gifts, but don't get wrapped up in the gifts. Right, and then the second one would be at Christmas time you can light the tree, but
5: what?
4: Are you going to give me the next part. What? <laughs> don't it. let the tree light you. Don't let the tree light you. I like it. It's
3: interesting. It's weird. The Just like the world. But you should like the world. Right? You can like the tree, but you should like the world. Right? And at Christmas time, you can rush to shop,
4: but. You can shop
3: online. <laughs>
4: okay, that, was that could be the next one. That's not the
3: solution to this one. Right? You can rush to shop, but. What's the alternative? Remember to stop. But remember to stop. That's not bad. That's not bad. Some people actually shop for 365 days a <laughs> year. The days <dream's> working today. <laughs> just all about this Christmas. Yes, yeah, it's nice. <laughs> it's a very kind of mind. Okay, and then all right, at Christmas time, you can shop online.
5: But you can't shop
0: for love.
5: Ooh. Ooh. Woo. <laughs> nice. <laughs> nice. <laughs> nice.
0: Does anybody have one that
3: would you like to start it off at Christmas time? Look, look, look. You
0: can. At Christmas time,
3: you can dress fancy. Or you can
4: wear the ugly sweater. What? Or you can wear
5: the ugly sweater. Yeah. Something positive about it. What? You can't wear the spirit. Ooh, that's not bad. Christmas
4: time, you can dress fancy. You can't wear
3: the spirit, the Holy Spirit. All right. We're going to pray together at this time. We'll move on. We'll worship a little bit more. Thank you for playing that little game with me. That literally was for the moment because I felt like God said do that. So I thank you for doing that. And then we'll worship a little more and then we'll go to the Word. Okay, let's pray. Father in heaven, you have blessed us immensely. You have given us your Son. You gave us, through tradition and history and choices of men, the Christmas season, Christ's Mass, the day to celebrate his birth. You gave us family and friends. You put us together as a church. Lord, you brought us so many good things. And over the years, people have tainted them, misused them, been upset about them. And even when they weren't, sometimes because they didn't get to participate, The way that they wanted to, sat back frustrated, sad, angry, vengeful. Nothing good given from you was ever meant to be misused, ever meant to be used for darkness or ignorance or evil. Father, we confess our need for your son in our lives on a daily basis. We do realize that Jesus sacrificed greatly to lay in that manger.
4: We don't know this side of heaven, whether the sacrifice was greater when he left heaven or when he died on the cross. <clears throat> or you think
3: maybe it was when he left heaven. Father, we love you. We thank you for blessing us with the people that are around us now. Thank you for seeing us through the pandemic so far and helping us to deal with the things that have gone on, helping us to retain some idea of worship and 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 loving you and loving others during this Christmas season when things are so kind of like messed up in a lot of families and people are debating whether they can even get together and um, invest in one another, love one another, whether there will be a hug for them on Christmas Eve or Christmas. Father, thank you for seeing us through. We ask you to continue to be in charge of our service to help our worship honor you, to take the tithes and offerings and put them into the kingdom advance, to bless our families, to heal our sick, and we have very few sick, to strengthen our work for you. We pray for those who come to the pantry this afternoon, those who are served via the light station, and those who will receive Christmas caroling at their front door, and And of course, Lord, we pray for ourselves. Help us, Lord, as we try to be the light that we're supposed to be. Help us now as we continue to worship you, to honor you with our voices, and we pray in Jesus' precious name. Amen. 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 So, obviously, as we've been talking about it today, Christmas is a season of hope for most folks, I think. And I I can't back that up statistically or anything like that. But I will say that for some folks, Christmas is not so much like that. For some, Christmas is synonymous with bad memories. It leaves a person thinking about the things that are not the way they would want them to be. But the fact is that in his perfect provision on Christmas... God revealed everything any onlooker would need to know about his plans to redeem mankind. Through Mary's song, through the angels over the shepherds, through the star in the sky that would uh, probably begin that night and and two years later or so would lead the uh, magi to come and deliver gifts and so on. That story certainly reveals everything any onlooker needs to know about his plans to redeem mankind. Which, in an aside for one second, is very interesting when you consider how much effort has gone into camouflaging that story, the story of Christmas, the birth of Jesus, and all the message of the gospel that is therein contained so that people get wrapped up in all the other aspects and traditions and everything like that and miss the most important thing, which is that gift of God and the gospel that is contained in the story. Now back on task for one second. We're going to look at a passage of scripture today, actually two of them, that fit together and are written by the Apostle John. And we're going to see then very clearly the Christmas story and the provisions of God as he revealed them to redeem mankind, even though we're not going to read the Christmas story today, okay? So grab your Bibles if you would, and maybe, maybe you might want to say Merry Christmas, or just give me a hoot or a holler or something as we go to John chapter 3. Amen. Savior, born. Savior is born. Amen. <laughs> like that. Okay? So we're reading from John chapter 3. Uh in one of the most, and I'm going to use this term, divorced scriptures ever to exist. And I say that because it has been removed out of the Bible and used on placards and on shirts and on hats and everything like that. And there are tons and tons of people who put up J3 colon at various sporting events and all kinds of things like that. Um, but maybe if you get right down to talking to a lot of these folks about the Bible, whatever, they don't even understand where it fits in the story. Or they don't know much at all about Scripture or even the biblical Jesus. And that's So this Scripture has been taken out of context. It, is, it comes from the context of the story of Jesus talking with Nicodemus, and he is explaining the gospel, explaining the efforts of God to redeem mankind to Nicodemus, who came to him in the middle of the night. That's where it actually comes from. It is Jesus speaking. So, so often people quote this verse and say, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him shall not perish, but have eternal or everlasting life. And they quote it as if someone is talking about Jesus. Well, yes, someone is talking about Jesus. It is Jesus who is talking about Jesus. And so, let us not take this verse out of context today, but understand that context about Jesus talking to Nicodemus, and he is talking about God sending Jesus himself And he says, for God so loved the world. And the emphasis there is on love. God loved the world. The world is all people. Not the world system per se, but all people, right? God so loved the world that he gave, and that's the giving portion, his only begotten son. He sent Jesus to lay in the manger, live a sinless life, and die on the cross. That whoever believes in him, so any person who would believe, shall not perish, but have eternal or everlasting life. So this is a gift from God that happened on Christmas Day and for the 34, 5, whatever years that Jesus was actually on earth. It happened. He sent Jesus. But it is also a clarification of the sorting that God would do. And as we talked about going back to the book of Malachi and then uh, in sermons since then, this is the line that God would draw on the sand. Accept my gift or don't. And if you don't, if you accept Jesus then you will be my child have the favor have eternal life if you refuse Jesus then you will be without and he's going to go on to explain that this is the apostle John writing the story of Jesus the night that he wrote with Nicodemus verse 17 he says for and if you read that four then you know it's a because so in other words um the the 16 was a for also right and it, so it was a because and if we go back to 14, and it says, As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes may in Him have eternal life. And then we're reading the becauses. The reason Jesus had to be lifted up so that people would believe in Him and have eternal life is because God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. It's a reason for the sacrifice of Jesus, the reason for the gift that God gave. And 17 is a, a further explanation of the reason. Because God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. So understand that this is clarified due to a perceived unexpected outcome, misinterpreted, or hard to interpret. So the Israelites, and anybody that understood the story about the Messiah would looking for a Messiah king, they wanted a powerful somebody to come and kick the butt of everybody they didn't like, and what they actually got was a suffering king, a suffering servant, a Messiah who would come and sacrifice himself on the cross to kick the butts of the beings that really needed butt kicking, which was evil spirits, demons self and sin. And therefore correspondingly death. And so they were looking for a solution to a current day problem and then they would die without it and then look for a, another generation would look for a solution to a current day problem and they would die without it and then Jesus finally came but he didn't come to kick the butts of the Romans or uh, or whoever the previous oppressors were that they were you know that they were always looking for the Messiah but he came to overcome death and really bring people into eternal life so this is clarified that he was sent into the world not to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him because they didn't get what they expected or they got something as an alternative to their interpretation of what the Messiah would be. Verse 18 says, he who believes in him is not judged. In other words, if you trust, if you believe in Jesus, the way he's, Jesus wants you to, the way God intends for you to, then you will not be judged. You will not be condemned. No sin can take you to hell. No sin can separate you from God. No sin is worthy of condemnation if you have believed in him. But understand that that word believe there was never meant to be divorced from actions. Here's the problem. Over the years, we began to say, if you believe," and as in 16 also says, if you believe, we began to say that to believe in something is just to kind of accept it as true. And that is the very cursory, simplistic explanation of what to believe in something is. But the truth is, even that tells you, right? Because if you accept it as true, then you take another stance. For example, if you're driving your car down the express, or down the state route and you're coming up on a light and that light's been green for a long time, if you believe the light is about to turn yellow, you may be cautious approaching the light. If you are approaching the light and it has turned yellow and you believe the light is about to turn red, you're going to take your foot off the gas and put it over on the brake at least to possibly stop, if not to actually stop before entering the intersection, which is what would actually be safe, right? Now, if you believe that you'll be perfectly fine, there are no cars coming, and you're just hovering over the brake, you might coast through even after the light has turned red. But if you believe a person should not run a red light, then you will stop at the red light. If you believe that a person should not take a risk to run a red light, then you will slow down when approaching the yellow light. Believing means acting on what you believe. It it always has and it always will. You're not going to believe and then just go, I believe that, but so what? Even if you believe as a rebel, you say, well, I believe if I talk back to this man, he'll punch me in the face. But I still think it's the right thing to do. I've got to do it. I believe he's going to punch me in the face. So I've still got to do it. And you'd still talk back to him. Why? Because one belief outweighs another belief. right? So you believe it's more important to do this, even though you will surely suffer, you believe. Right? We understand that believing is about actions corresponding, but this basically straight up says He who believes in Jesus is not judged. He who does not believe has been judged already. It's already settled. It's already done. Jesus didn't come to judge. That's already done. Because He has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. He wasn't looking for, He wasn't ready for, He wasn't receiving the Savior. Believing has never meant being convinced, thinking something without acting on what you're convinced of. It has always meant believing in driving you to take some action. 19. This is the judgment that the light has come into the world. So now remember that previous verse, 18. He said they've already been judged because they didn't accept the Son of God. Now this is the judgment. This is why it was so. This is the verdict that the light has come into the world and men loved the darkness rather than the light for their deeds were evil. So I ask you, in that verse, in verse 19, who made the choice? Was it God sitting on the throne going, well, I, I want to save this one, and I, or, and I don't want to save that one? No. The people made the choice, right? They decided they preferred the darkness over the light. That's what the verse says. Men loved the darkness over the light for their deeds were evil. So they decided they preferred to do the bad things rather than doing the good thing, which was to embrace Jesus and live according to their belief. This is the judgment, that the light has come into the world and men loved the darkness rather than the light for their deeds were evil. Jesus is what's right. He is the ruler of what's right. He is the summation of what's right. He is the complete fulfillment of the law and the rule that God laid out. He is what's right. If you choose to embrace what's wrong rather than what's right, if you choose to embrace ignorance, then you are not embracing the right that Jesus is, and accordingly, you have already been judged. Jesus is the answer to the question that plagues every human heart. And when the answer is given, if you do not accept the answer, then there is no other answer. Jesus by definition is unignorance. When you see light and darkness in the Bible, understand that darkness very often is equated with ignorance, is not knowing or knowing and not accepting, which would be more like wickedness, right? But it has the same connotation. So, ignorance is not knowing, then Jesus reveals himself, now you know, and he is the unignorance. He is right. He is the answer. And if a person will not accept the answer, then they are already judged. Verse 20 says, for, So we got another because this is true. Because everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. So in other words, people who do evil, they want to get away with what they're doing. They want to get away with it in the world. They want to get away with it in themselves. They want to get away with it under God. They want to get away with it because they want to get away with it, they're not going to come and encounter Jesus. Because the minute that they encounter Jesus, the minute that they see Jesus, that first contact, that first contact with Jesus, they're going to go, wait a minute, something's wrong here. And if everything is right there with Jesus, and I am not like Jesus, I am not right with Jesus, I am not, I contrast with who Jesus is, then I have a problem, right? And they don't want that problem. They want to continue with their evil deeds. But continuing in wrong when right is available is evidence of essentially hating right. You don't want right. You oppose right. You know right is available. I can tell the truth. I can pay back the bill or whatever. But I'm not going to do that because I want to do it my way. I want to do it my way because I think I'll get ahead or whatever. So you actually don't, you oppose, which is the same as hating when you oppose um, in a a wicked way or in a dark way. When you oppose something, that's the same as hating it. So you hate right. Avoiding the truth and enlightenment about God's standard is done in the instinct of self-preservation. This is why people don't want to encounter Jesus. This is why people don't want to talk about Jesus. This is why people don't want to have that first contact, that immense searching if they will. They don't want to do that. They don't want to come to church when you invite them to church. That's why inviting somebody to church may not work. It might not get the job done. Because they don't want to. So, by the time they walk in the door to come to church after being invited 13 times, as they say, they invite somebody 13 times to come to church, statistically speaking. They've been invited 13 times. By the time they walk in the door, they are already sort of armored up. They're already protecting themselves. So yeah, I'll go to church, but I'm not going to encounter Jesus. But if you will get them to give you an open and fair audience, you can actually explain the truth about Christ right on the street, right in the home, right in the restaurant, right in the store, and they may come to Jesus. And then, whether or not they ever come to church, if they've believed, In Jesus and it begins to affect them, they actually respond to that, they have been saved and they will not be judged. And isn't that what we're after? That's why evangelism and witnessing, the vast majority of it, needs to happen out there. Because otherwise, when you bring them in here and do it, and it works the same way with anybody that is working, walking in ignorance, walking in evil deeds, they don't want to come and contact. They don't want to come into that touch with Jesus. He says, because everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light to fear that his deeds will be exposed. This is a self-preservation thing. Okay? People go to counselors and pay counselors $150 an hour and then lie to their counselor. They don't tell them the truth about what they're going through even though they're paying $150 an hour. And it takes years and years and years for the counselor to weedo themselves into their confidence to get them to tell the truth so they can actually help them. This is a very real thing. People do not necessarily want what's best for them when it comes to psychological, emotional, mental, spiritual, even physical for crying out loud. You go to the doctor the doctor says, "Well, you I just witnessed to a man this last week and he said, I've been to the doctor and they told me if I don't have chemo and radiation, I'll be dead in six months. But I'm not going to do it. I don't believe it. He said, They said, I got a 90% chance of living after six months if I have chemo radiation, it's a very treatable kind of cancer, but I just don't want to do it. I don't want to go through it. And he wasn't saying he was trusting God because he flat out told me he didn't believe. People don't want the help that is proffered many times. And that's what Jesus is. Verse 21 But he who practices the truth comes to the light so that his de- deeds may be manifested as having been wrought in God. So the way Christians walk, the way godly people walk, even people that think they're godly when they're not, right? even if they don't know Jesus, but they think they're godly, the way that they walk <clears throat> is essentially saying, God and I are coming into anyone's knowledge. If you, if you want to hear it, fine. If you want to see it, fine. If you want to be with me, fine. And they say, see who is holding my hand? see who I'm with, see who I am for, right? And you, and you run into people, and, they, and a lot of times they come from a background that's somewhat religious, and they don't truly know Jesus, but they've been taught that they're okay, and they will literally walk out and say, well, I'm this, and I'm that, and this is what I believe, and this is that, and they're so confident that they tend to attract people around them, or they tend to offend people around them with their confidence, one or the other, and it's because they think they know, Right? And Jesus was saying, those who actually know ought to be, behave like those who think they know and come out into the light and explain so that their deeds can be made manifest as having been wrought in God. In other words, worked in God. Worked in connection with or connected to God. Okay? And now we're going to go over to another passage of Scripture. This is, now this one, this one here is telling a story of Jesus' life the night that he met Nicodemus. Right? We talked about that. That's the context. And this is just a part of the story, but that's him talking to Nicodemus, talking about himself. Now later, John would write in 1 John an overview of what a person has to do if they understand the same things that Jesus was talking about to Nicodemus, right? And so we're going to go to 1 John, and it's in chapter 4. Now we can't read the whole book, but the whole book has this theme. Right? But we're just going to read verses 7 through 21. Here we go. John writes... 1 John 4, 7. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. The one who does not love does not know God, for God is love. By this the love of God was manifested in us, that God has sent His only begotten Son into the world so that we might live through him. So the gift of God's love was Jesus. Back to John 3, the Christmas story, etc. Okay? Now 10. In this love, I'm sorry, in this is love, not that we loved God, but he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. That's just a big word. It means he paid for all the ramifications. Okay? 11. Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought also to love one another. We also ought to love one another. No one has seen God at any time. If we love one another, God abides in us, and his love is perfected in us. By this we know that we abide in him, and he in us, because he has given us of his Holy Spirit. We have seen and testify that the Father has sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. So we've kind of got two qualifiers here. The love, without the love, you're out of luck. And now, we, without the confessing of Jesus, you're out of luck. And they kind of go hand in hand. Can't have one without the other. It says God abides in him and he in God. Verse 16. We have come to love, I'm sorry, we have come to know and have believed the love which God has for us. Have you come to know and believed the love that God has for you? I hope so. God is love. And the one who abides in love abides in God and God abides in him. That almost sounds like geometry. You could use that as a proof in almost every situation, right? You can, sub- you can substitute love for God, basically is what he's saying. Okay, so let's try to break that down real quick just make sure we understand it. By this, love is perfected in us so that we may have confidence in the day of judgment. So love is growing to completion in us so that with the purpose that we may have confidence, boldness, and you could say hope now for the confidence and boldness in the day of judgment. Because as he is, just the way Jesus is, just the way God is, so also are we in this world. So we are doing what he is. We are what he is. We have become his love, essentially, if you'll take that. Uh, to use that language. We are with him and like him. You follow the concept? Okay, verse 18, just a few left. There is no fear in love. Uh, We want that, no fear. But perfect love casts out fear because fear involves punishment. So you shouldn't be living with worry or fear about what might come because you have God's perfect love. God loves you. And if you're loving the way God loves, then you know then you will have confidence in the day of the judgment. Follow it back. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear because fear involves punishment, and the one who fears is not perfected in love. In other words, if you're worried about the outcome of the future, if you're concerned about that, if you're allowing the fear of what might happen to affect your present, then you have a problem. Because the back, that's the backside of the equation. You only have that fear if you are not confident in the outcome of you walking in God. And I would submit to you, you could break it down this simply. If you do not love the way God loves, you will have fear. And if you fear, you do not love the way God loves. Now, it, because I, I took a logic class back at BG back in the day, I didn't do very well in it, but I took a logic class back at BG back in the day, I remember that some things that go one way don't always go the other way. And so while you will always have fear if you don't have love, and while you will always have fear, it will be obvious that you do not have love if you have fear. There are other reasons why you may have fear as well. Okay? So it's not the only reason you might have fear. But you shouldn't have fear if you know that God is going to take care of it. And you should know that God is going to take care of it if you love the way he loves. That's what it says. 19. We love because he first loved us. We don't love because it's pretty. We don't love because it makes our life better. We don't love because they love us. We don't love because they will come if we love them good enough they will come and live with us. If we love them good enough they will do what they want. We want them to do? We don't love for any reason. You don't love your wife, you don't love your children, you don't love your church members, you don't love anyone because of who they are or what they are or how they act or what you want them to do or because they fit well with you or because like You you fit together like puzzle pieces, physically, psychologically, emotionally, spiritually. You don't love for that reason. You love because God first loved you. In fact, I want to go so far as to say, based on that one verse alone, that nobody loves who does not know the love of God. They use the word like uh, a pronoun so commonly used, like I or me. They use love almost as often as I or me but they don't even know what love is if they have not experienced the love of God. According to verse 19, we love because he first loved. Now, some would argue with me about that and they would say, no, they could love because they were loved by their parents. Who loved because they were loved by God? True, but their love today then because they don't know the love of God would probably be a flawed, weaker version of love than the intended version that God has. Two verses left. If someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For the one who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. Whatever we do that does not potentially draw someone toward God could be considered an act of hate. So be aware that at times you watching your TV or reading a book or playing a game could be considered an act of hate. You're like, oh no, this is, I'm just allowed to do this. Or I, have, I have my rights. I'm free, I can make whatever choices I want. But if your choices keep you from winning somebody or drawing somebody closer to God or walking hand in hand with God, then what you are doing could be considered an act of hate. And we are called to love. And if you engage in an act of hate, then you will fear the outcome of what comes today and tomorrow. That's why anxiety is common amongst Christians because they are not loving the people in their church and the people in the world and the people that God has sent them and God himself the way that God would have us to. Whatever we do that does not potentially draw someone toward God could be an act of hate. Now, I'll break that down and show it a little bit better in the points and we're almost there, okay? Verse 21. And this commandment we have from him. So, this is what God told us to do. That the one who loves God should love his brother also. Alright, so in these two passages of Scripture, and kind of by way of an overview, but at the same time digging pretty deep if you pay close attention to the thoughts of it, Okay, John is explaining to us, number one, and it shouldn't come as any surprise, that God loves us. But here is where it gets to become a sticky wicket. What he actually explained is that God loves us all. God loves all of us, even even those of us who do not love Him back. God, Jesus, loved the people that were crucifying Him. We love not because they're good to us. We love not because they don't persecute us. We love not because they don't talk bad or slander or refuse to come to church. We love because He first loved us. God loves us all. He wants us with Him in this life and the next. God desires that right relationship. That coming to heaven one day. God wants you to come to heaven more than you do. As much as you could possibly think how awesome it's going to be. Think Christmas presents are cool? There's Christmas presents infinity in heaven. With or without wrapping paper, your choice. God loves you more than you could ever love Him. And He wants that right relationship. And He wants that end destination. He wants us with Him in this lifetime and the next. To demonstrate that, He came. He showed up. He gave. Like the song says, He gave all that He could give. He would not be stopped. He shared the truth. He lived and literally became sin's curse upon that tree. But this is not about the crucifixion. It's about the sacrifice of God to send His own Son here to suffer with us. That's why He's called Emmanuel. With us, not whatever the word is for us. (laughs) I don't know what it would be. He came to suffer with us. And the offer to come into right relationship with Him begins all the way throughout the the Old Testament. Genesis 3, the fallen... I'm sorry, the fall broken or at least damaged relationship with God. From that moment on, people have not had peace with God. What did they sing? On Christmas Day, what, what we would call Christmas Day, even though it was probably not December 25th, what did they sing? Peace on earth, goodwill to men. The fall broke the relationship between man and God. It at least damaged it. Our image, we were supposed to represent God, was damaged that day. But God's love did not fail. In fact, God's love allowed for a refusal. If you love somebody so much that you have to have them, you have to control them, and they have to behave the way that you want them to behave, they have to be the person that you want them to be and meet your needs, I submit to you, you don't love them at all. You just want to control them. You're a manipulating, controlling freak. Not a human being really even, but a monster. If that's the way you love people, that's not God's love. That's not the love that God meant for us that He built into human beings. It's not the relationship that we were created for. And God isn't like that either. God doesn't look at you that way. God doesn't love you so He can control you. Rather, God gave the opportunity to refuse the advance. And you can... Essentially, condemn yourself, and it's your right to do so, and it's their right to do so. It's every person's right to be away from God if they want to. If that right were not built into it, if God's love did not include the right to refuse His proposal, then it would not be love at all. So Jesus didn't come to condemn the world. But rather, they were condemned already who did not accept the Son of God. Who did not believe in the way that God provided. He did not take the, the offer. The second thing I want you to see in here is that these passages of Scripture, and we're close to that video, son. Arden. Should be on the computer. <laughs> Hopefully. Sorry, the person who queued up the video isn't in the room, apparently. Okay, so the the second thing I want you to see, don't play it yet though. I want you to see in there is that this is about first contact. Jesus' coming is about first contact. It isn't our first contact with God, right? It wasn't Mary's first contact with God. She prayed, Lord, your will be done. Where do you think she got that from? Not from Jesus like we did in John 17 uh, when Jesus prayed, but Lord, your will be done. We got that from Jesus. Where do you think Mary got it from? And Jesus hadn't been born yet. And she said, let it be done. Your will be done to your maidservant. But through this, and even as they looked forward to it coming, God was reaching out to us. He touched His creation. He took the initiative to end the conflict. This was the plan all along. In Genesis, God talked to Adam and Eve about how a a son, a child, an heir of Eve would rise up and crushed the serpent, and the serpent would strike his heel. What do you think he's talking about? In Moses' day, they were told that a great prophet like Moses would eventually come and lead God's people Forever. In David's day, he was promised an eternal kingship that would forever sit on the throne ruling God's people. What do you think he was talking about? In Abraham's day, he was promised a seed, a faithful man. Though he only ever had a very small selection of children, he was told that his descendants would number as the grains of sand on the shore and the stars in the sky. People can't have that many kids or grandkids or great, 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 great grandkids. That was not an option. He was talking about children of the faith and it was... Prophecy. In Isaiah, we were told, and this is beautiful, a virgin-born Savior through whose stripes we would be healed and who would be cut off from the land of the living, but whose many descendants would be so many descendants and more. It's always been this way. He loved us. He lifted us. He supported us. He called us. He resurrected us right here in our bodies. He forgave us. He came for us when we were ignorant and foolish and undeserving and distant and dead in our trespasses and sins. God Himself came. Probably not on December 25th, but at the birth of Jesus. You may or may not be. Do we have the video? Okay, good. You may, you may or may not be familiar with the story of Pride and Prejudice. It's completely okay if you're not. I want to show you a very short clip. We'll watch it like at least two times so people can see it from the 2005 <coughs> version of the movie Pride and Prejudice. Thank you for your
4: stimulating
5: company. It has been most instructor. Not at all. Pleasure is all mine. Mr. Mm-hmm.
3: Play it again. Just hit the back loop.
5: <sighs> it's coming. Almost there. Thank you for your stimulating company. It is the
0: quickest instructor. Not at all. Pleasure
6: online. all
5: mine.
3: Thank you. In this scene, you see the two main characters, and I'm not going to talk about this like any kind of expert, because that isn't me. But you see the two main characters, Darcy and Elizabeth, and as she's getting up into the carriage, and mind you, they do not have a romance at this point, um, but they have had a couple of encounters, but they are not together or anything like that. And she climbs up the carriage, and he gives her his hand, neither one of them wearing gloves, Contact between male and females was extremely uncommon. This is just not done. And then they touch hands and she climbs up and as she looks, she sees him flex his hand like that. Now, this isn't in any other version um, and Pride and Prejudice experts have blogged on it and talked about it and written about it and everything else because this is just not done. It was not done in the day. And basically, the gist of it is at the moment that their hands contacted, at the moment that they, were first, they first touched, they were both impacted by the touch. In that moment... Darcy, who is strong, kind of gentlemanly, honor, whatever, he helps her up and and he basically initiates that contact. right? And then she looks and she sees him make that motion. Now, it's not in the books, but in the movie it says something so incredible to so many people. Now, I, I had seen the movie. Maybe you've seen the movie. I've seen the movie, what, five times. Because Sherry really likes the story. And I kind of like the movie a lot. I've seen the movie like five times. And until I was studying this message, God had not emphasized that 22 seconds of film. And then I entered into this world where all these people were talking about how, one, it was a breach of etiquette, how it was really, he really risked something, it was really a big, you know, taking st- putting himself out there and like that. And... How the director screwed up the story and that would never happen. And this huge controversy. Why do you think there's this huge controversy about the first contact between Darcy and Elizabeth? For God. He loved us, He lifted us, He supported us, He called us, He resurrected us right here in our bodies. He forgave us, He came for us. When we were ignorant, foolish, undeserving, distant, and dead in our trespasses and sins, God initiated first contact. And let me say this, that is just not done. It's not appropriate. And the Jews, the Israelites, the people who knew God before or thought they did, they crucified Jesus or were part and parcel to crucifying Jesus because that's just not done. You don't put yourself out there. You don't extend yourself. You don't make first contact. You don't come for the sick, the weary, the wounded, the aching, the stupid. They should die and go to hell. That's just what's right. But that's not God. God was not willing that we should go on not knowing who He is, not knowing how much He is affected by our plight. In fact, this scene is not in the original script. It means something. He lifts her. He supports her. He takes a risk. He feels something. He is not impregnable or impervious. He is real and he feels something he never felt before. A lot of people interpret it in different ways. Some even saying that others are making a bigger deal out of it than there is. What's that sound like to you? This is a movie and it's art, and it may or may not have spiritual impact. But based on these verses that we have read, you can see that God loves you, loved you, and He reached out to you, reached out to me. He's doing it again today. The question is will we be impacted? Will we respond? Will we look and see God flexing His hand? Or will we just go in the carriage and not care? You must allow God to impact you. He is love and He loves us and He has taken every necessary step to request yours and mine friendship. And if we refuse to be affected, then we have turned away. Because He has done what in human interpretation no God should ever do. He exposed himself. He risked himself. And he lifted us and supported us and called him to himself whenever he should have. Not by any standard of men. Only by God's standard. God loves us, all of us, and allows for refusal. God has initiated first contact, risked everything to come after us. And living still, hand in hand, these verses say, there is hope. Living still, hand in hand, there is hope. God loves us, and so we love. God's holding on, and so we are held on to. God's reaching out, and so we are reaching out. Take your gloves off to walk with God. That is, take a risk. Reach out to Him again and again through the spiritual discipline due to God's character. It really is no risk at all. It's reason to hope. In all circumstances, take your gloves off to reach out to others. That is, take a risk yourself to reach out as the body of Christ and invite other believers to participate in your life and participate in their life. Yes, they're dirty. Yes, they're nasty. Yes, they're stupid. Yes, they'll irritate you. Yes, they'll bother you. Yes, they may even hurt you when you push Jesus a little bit. Yes, they may not want to know about the things that you think are the most important things. But God loved them so much that He gave them the right to refuse. And they get the right to refuse and still are loved. So take your gloves off and reach out to others. Take your gloves off and touch others so that they can feel God through you. That might be the only chance they have because they've already put off everything about His first contact. You coming, you're like the second wave. You're the opportunity to bring them to a realization of what they have given up, what they have walked away from, what they have despised. Take your gloves off and touch others so that you can feel God, they can feel God through you. They may need your witness. They may need your gospel presentation. They may need a human filter through which to realize the real truths of God. Or they may need your presence to feel the one who is reaching out to them. God doesn't need your help, but you need to help. And they might need your help. In fact, it will demonstrate whose hand you are holding. Because remember, this is all about the fact that God loves them. Yes, gives them the right to refuse. But God loves them. And if you are holding God's hand, and God is going about the business of loving the church members and loving the world to Him and taking those risks, if that's what God is going about the business of and you're holding His hand, then where are you going to be? You say, well, God is like Stretch Armstrong. God is going about the business of winning the world while I go about the business of padding my bank account or, or buying good gifts for my family and my friends or, or you know taking vacations or planning for retirement. or While I go about that business, God's over there at the end of a very long arm of God. He's over there. I'm still holding his hand, but he's over there doing what he wants to do while he still holds my hand. And God is big enough. He can do that. And the truth is, that's probably true. But there are no promises concerning it. If you do not love, you do not abide in God. If you hate your brother, meaning if you engage in activities of hate, which could be as simple as padding your bank account while somebody else is suffering. It could be as simple as leaving your Bible on the shelf instead of reading it throughout the week. If you do those things of hate, then maybe you don't abide in God and you don't have the love that God wants for you. Poem by, sort of a poem, or uh, I don't know what it is, by an unknown author. It says, Loving as he loves. When it could have been over, God went under. When it seemed finished, Jesus began it in earnest. When it seemed the rich would be well, God opened the way for all to draw close. He extended his hand and made possible all, All people alive again. So he set the stage and called for scene one, act one. And the players began to make their choices. The curtain fell and gave access in deference to his holiness. With my hand in his, I shall enter into his gates. And then when the final scene is over, after the final curtain call, the plot will be seen by the players who would not play their part at all. But it will be too late because the mending of the heart starts with loving as he loves. Now, in preparation for then. Will you love as he loves? If his hand is holding your hand, then you will love as he loves. We come to our conclusion. And I'm going to read from, first from the book of Romans. I think this is our last text for the day, actually, we'll read from the book of Romans. And it comes from chapter 8, verse 31. What, shall, what then shall we say to these things, If God is for us, who is against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all. How will he not also with him freely give us all things? Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died. Yes, rather, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? Just as it is written, for your sake we are being put to death all day long. We were considered as sheep to be slaughtered. See, all of those things we like to think, God's going to keep all those things away from us. But actually what it says is that those things will fairly likely come and they will not separate us from God's love. But in all these things, as we experience them, we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor heights, nor depth, I'm sorry, nor... Let me get that right. Nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing. Whose hand are you holding? Do you know God and has He not shown you what He is capable of? Has He not shown you that He can turn every hardship out for your good if you love Him and are called according to His purpose? Have you been deeply affected by your contact with Him? This should be the case. If not, the Word says, believe in your heart, confess with your mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord and Savior and that God raised Him from the dead and you will be saved. There is hope in that. There is love in that. There is no fear in that. And he who trusts in the Lord is never put to shame. Begin to trust in earnest today. Whose hand are you holding? Some folks wouldn't leave the hand they were holding to take the one offered. Even though we were made for a relationship with God, some refused, refused the relationship offered. They rigidly hold hands with the world. They trust and even love with some kind of love the world system that they are not serving and they are not serving two masters. It's not that they're serving God and the world. They're just serving the world. They have chosen to decline the generous offer of God. They are condemned already because they choose not to believe in the Son of God. They will likely not be persecuted for the faith because their version of the faith is not limited to what they can do while holding God's hand, but instead their version of the faith is disconnected from God and connected with the world. They may or may not pretend to be Christian, but they don't need to walk with Him all the time because they are not holding His hand. They are holding the hand of someone or something worldly. God would call it idolatry, and while the sorting has begun, it is not finished. But never fear. It will be. a song we commonly sing. I'll read a few of the lyrics. Put your hand in the hand of the man who stilled the water. Put your hand in the man, in the hand of the man who calmed the sea. Take a look at yourself and you can look at others differently. Put your hand in the hand of the man from Galilee. My mama taught me how to pray before I reached the age of seven. When I'm down on my knees, that's when I'm closest to heaven. Daddy lived his life, two kids and a wife, Well, you do what you must do, but he, but he showed me enough of what it takes to get me through. Put your hand in the hand of the man who stole the water. Jesus did it. He initiated first contact on behalf of God who loves us all. Whose hand are you holding? If you are holding God's hand, then you are meant to be about loving God's people and loving the world. We love them differently. What did he say about loving God? Number one, you love God when you follow his commands. These are the spiritual disciplines. They're followed commands done intentionally, prioritized, organized, emphasized, and realized. Do what God says. Simple. You love him if you do what God says, love his people. The people are your brothers and sisters more than your flesh and blood. I know you love your actual brother, you love your actual sister, you love your parents. But if Jesus actually said, unless a man hates his fam- family, comes follow me, I've got no place for him. Now I'm not saying you should hate your family. I'm definitely not preaching hating your family. Well, he was making a point. Your brothers and sisters. In fact, they came when uh, Jesus' mother and brothers came to get him because they thought he was nuts. Jesus said this of the people that gather around him. He said, all the people in this room, they are my mother and brothers. You got a new family when you became a Christian. Your family is God's people. And we are to love his people. They are our family more than our born family, more than our flesh and blood. This is love, that he would die for us. Now let us follow his example and die for one another as needed, both literally, in other words, let your life be taken if it must be so in order to show love to a brother. And figuratively, die daily, putting your wants aside for other people's needs. And then lastly, love people to be His people. As long as there is a chance that a person might get saved, spare no effort or resources that is not otherwise specifically committed to God's work in order to reach that lost person. Extend yourself. Bleed if you have to. Take your gloves off and go after them. Sacrifices must be paid. Pain and suffering may be a reality. Sorrow and sighing are an ever-present danger. Remember the highway of holiness? But walking with our hand in his hand is the only way to ensure that we get the eternal victory and put the control in the hands of the one who loves us and sent his son to die for us. Who do you want to control the outcome of your life? Yourself? Your friends? Your family members? Your boss? No! The only one capable of controlling the outcome of your life is God, the one who loves us and sent His Son to die for you. Believe! You don't want anyone else at the helm when the ship crashes. When there is no order to be given to avoid the crash, you will want the helmsman who can see you through. God loves us. He loves us all. Even to the point of allowing refusal. God's first contact with us is evident. That it was a thing that some would say should never be done. Love the way God loves. Extend yourself to love your brothers and sisters in Christ. The fact that you don't know the hardships of other people in this room, that's not love. The fact that you don't know the hardships of people in the community and aren't doing something about it, that's not love. Extend yourself. Take your gloves off and love the way He loves. You can do it one-handed while you keep the other hand in the hand of God. Let me pray briefly for you and we'll be through. But I would ask you today to commit yourself to love people the way God does. To love God by following His commands and to love His people as His people and to love people to Him, to be His people. Father in Heaven, it's interesting how love is a constantly reusable, renewable, regenerating resource. It's like the, the living water in us. Sometimes we love others and we wind up getting hurt. And then we try to pull back to prevent it from happening again. A controlled risk would be to just sort of like little things here and there, to be ready if we're ever really called on. We say things like, if you really need something, let me know. If there's anything I can do to help, let me know. And it's trite. It's simplistic. Because love is not being around supposedly available. It's being all in. Gloves off. Making contact caring, serving, using our spiritual gift, whatever it might be, to encourage the brothers and sisters of the church to reach the lost with the truth about Jesus. Anything short of an action designed to draw people closer to you is not love. Lord, we ask you to help us, to forgive us. Because the truth is we've missed more opportunities to genuinely love than we have left. So we ask that we'll capitalize on future opportunities. That we will extend ourselves, mark out in our spending plan more and more resources to enact your initiatives, whatever they might be. So that people can come to know you, so that your people can have what they need. I, I've heard it said, or people have had a worry that if we were really loving and giving, then people will come and join the church or become members just to get the loving and giving, not following you, not serving you, not caring about you. That all just sounds like worry and fear. It certainly isn't what we've seen over the years. I've heard it said that if we go out sharing the gospel, we'll lose friends. A <laughs> skeptic in me wants to say, with friends like that, who needs them? But listening to your word reminds me that we are supposed to be loving like that always sharing we feel like we have limited resources that's a lie you have all the resources if we should drain the coffers completely you have everything that's needed to fill them again And we can't love like this amongst each other we can't love each other this way and love people to come closer to you. And what's the point of being a church, or even are we a church? Are we advancing the kingdom of God? We're trying to feel better about ourselves. But we realize that you took a risk. You extended yourself. You gave more than anybody could ever give. Left heaven, died on a cross, 30-some years in between. Sinless, yet suffering. You gave. Lord, help us to be renewed and refreshed in this Christmas season. To think about. But more than think about. To act on every godly plan. To love our brothers and sisters in Christ. And to love people to you. To follow your commands. And love you. Finally, see fear once and for all chased out, and your light shining brightly in the darkness and the ignorance that the world sometimes prefers. Let it be chased away. And this we pray in Jesus' name, Amen. We know how how the closing hymn at this time, so I suppose praise team to come forward and lead us in that. And if uh, you so. Feel led? You let us know, and you could uh, speak a word. If the Lord is speaking in your heart,
4: or something that uh, you need to repent of, or something that you need to really just turn to the Lord or confess, you can do that. Uh, if you're something Jesus you Christ, the Lord and say it was the first time ever in
3: earnest, then you can do that. Doesn't no matter what people think. It no matters uh, that His hand is extended and you're taking it. So stand if you will where you are, and let us sing. And this is our closing hymn. She says yes, and then it's yes, and then it's now, and then it's like, what will they think of me? Shadow, why do little gifts, why little kids. Constant little risks as you're extending yourself out there to love them and show them that you care, and so on. That's what dating or finding yourself to other is often like, it's like: constant little risks, taking risks. I'm putting myself out there. When it comes to loving people who are in the world or loving people who are in the churches like that, and people, are, we know these guys. I know everybody in this room, I know you I kind of know your basic situation. I pray for you on a fairly regular basis, whatever. And, and, and we could be so much more than that to each other. And at the same time, we could find other people then collectively as a group, we can find other people and love them and take risks and, and try to draw them closer to God and just get used to saying, I'm loving you because God loves you. Because my hand is in the hand of God. That's why I had to come today and, and bring you this or do this for you or encourage you in this way. Of course I'll pray for you, like Samuel said. Far be it to me for not to not pray for you. But that's, like the, that's the minimum. It's such a great thing, but it's a minimum because you can be the practical need meter. You can be the one who actually goes out there with it, your hand in God's hand. And when you and God go... Whatever God wants to happen, that's what's going to happen. And that's what it's all about. Because when we go with God and do something that we were risking, we're taking a chance, now we're trusting God to work it out. Right? Rather than us. Even when you pray, you pray like, oh, they hurt me, God hurt them back. At least pray, your Lord, Lord, your will be done. And then if you choose to hurt them back, that's up to God. And if you choose not to hurt them back, that's up to God. And if He chooses instead for them to hear the gospel one more time, then that's up to God. He chooses instead for them to live fifty years on the face of the earth abusing people, then that's up to God. And you need it ultimately in His hands, and that's what believing is all about. But to do that, you've got to be outside yourself. You've got to be outside your flesh, outside your, your walls that hold you back. You got to be ready to speak up, ready to go do. I remember years ago when I was a young Christian in East Toledo, and I arrived and I was late because, like, I was always late back then, like everywhere. Everywhere all the time, always late. And I was late. I got to church, and church had already begun. I wasn't going to Sunday school, and it was like 10.55, and church there started at 10.45, and I was walking in, and there were like four pieces of litter along the door, and it's, and it, even though it's the back door, it's the door. You know, everybody was going the door. And I'm like, well, 150 people come to church today, and there's four people, four pieces of litter. And I'm like, I went in, I set my stuff down, I had a diaper bag, whatever, because I had a leash with me, I set my stuff down, and we went out and picked up the litter before we went to church, going in late. It's just about caring and doing the extra things, right? And I was a young Christian at best when that happened. Do you care? Is your hand in the hand of God? Then you're going to look for the extra things. Like when I'm tired, I work a lot, or I got a lot going on, or I'm doing a lot already. Just be careful because we've all got stuff that tires, it out, tires us out and not all of it's godly. And you can cut the non-godly stuff that tears it out and start doing this stuff. One night when you go to sit down and watch two and a half hours of TV, decide instead you're going to go to the store, not really to buy anything, but to talk to somebody about Jesus and see what happens. You know? One night when you and your significant other or you and a good buddy get together and you're going to play games or you're going to go on a date night or whatever, cancel that. Cancel the games or the date night and say... I'm going to get with another Christian and I'm going to go out and we're going to go somewhere and find somebody to tell about Jesus. Or if it's like a four hour deal, you cancel. not we'll find three people. You know, all you got to do is go sit down for coffee, tell your waiter, go to the grocery store, go to the store, buy 10 things in 10 trips through the same register. You'll get 10, 20 second conversations. That's more than enough to share the gospel. How much will it cost you? 20 bucks? Is it worth 20 bucks to tell somebody about Jesus? Heck yeah. Worth a lot more than that. Whatever it takes, right? That's what it means. Take your gloves off and risk like Jesus risked. That's who we follow. We follow Jesus. You don't like me saying it? Read the Bible. (laughs) It's, It's there. We follow Jesus. We need to take risks. But they're not really risks. They're acts of love. And those acts of love, God determines the outcome. We're going to pray together now and be through but I'm going to encourage you to go out there this week and, and uh, make, let's make the Christmas season about the risk that Jesus really took rather than about all the other stuff that tries to camouflage it. He's God. And He loves us all. Not just those who come and gather in this room. We have a special love for those who come and gather in this building with brothers and sisters closer, deeper, more intimately than our family. At least it's supposed to be that way. And then we have a love for the
0: world that's all mm-hmm. about getting them to know Jesus.